Try Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today. With live telephone support seven days a week, it's clear why Therapy Notes is rated 4.9 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot and has a 5-star rating on Google. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. And now for all you prescribers out there, Therapy Notes is proudly introducing ePrescribe. Try it today with no strings attached and see why everyone is switching to Therapy Notes, now featuring ePrescribe. You can get two months free by using promo code CHAT at therapynotes.com. Trauma Therapist Network is a website to learn about trauma and how it shows up in our lives and to find a trauma therapist. Go to traumatherapistnetwork.com to find a trauma therapist near you today. Therapy Chat Podcast, episode 325. This is the Therapy Chat Podcast with Laura Reagan, LCSWC. The information shared in this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health professional. And now, here's your host, Laura Reagan, LCSWC. Today's episode is sponsored by Trauma Therapist Network. Trauma Therapist Network is a platform for finding a trauma therapist, learning about trauma, and understanding about how trauma shows up in our lives and what the healing process can look like. Go to www.traumatherapistnetwork.com to learn more. This week's episode is sponsored by Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today. With live telephone support seven days a week, it's clear why Therapy Notes is rated 4.9 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot and has a 5-star rating on Google. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. And now, for all you prescribers out there... Therapy Notes is proudly introducing ePrescribe. Use coupon code CHAT or click the link in the show notes to get two free months at therapynotes.com. Hi, welcome back to Therapy Chat. I'm your host, Laura Reagan. Today I am bringing you a conversation I recently had that is definitely about a sensitive topic as so many of these episodes are. I definitely want to give everyone listening a heads up that if you have a history of domestic violence or a history of witnessing domestic violence when you were a child, if that's a sensitive topic for you, please take care of yourself when listening today because we're talking about Domestic violence, stalking, protective orders, and it could be very sensitive if that's a something that you have personal experience with. My guest today is Katie Gillis, LCSW. Katie Gillis is a psychotherapist, advocate, and author with a passion for working with survivors of family trauma and the LGBTQ plus community. She received her bachelor's in psychology from Clark University and her master's in social work from Tulane, where she focused on sexuality and promoting effective and accurate sex education in Louisiana schools. Katie's work focuses on assisting survivors of psychological abuse, stalking, and other non-physical forms of domestic violence and family trauma, 
and assisting survivors with navigating the legal system to receive protection. Her recent book, Invisible Bruises, How a Better Understanding of the Patterns of Domestic Violence Can Help Survivors Navigate the Legal System, sheds light on the ways that the legal system can perpetuate the cycle of domestic violence by failing to recognize patterns that would otherwise hold perpetrators accountable and protect survivors. Gillis provides training on recognizing patterns of domestic violence and family dysfunction, treating the aftermath of abuse and trauma, and helping survivors move forward. Now, please keep in mind that neither Katie nor myself are attorneys, and anything we say about the legal system is through the lens of our experience as advocates and lived experience working in the courts with survivors. But every state is different. And what we say may be common in some places, may not be common where you are. The good news is there are domestic violence programs in every state that you can learn about through your state coalition against domestic violence. Sometimes they're together with state coalitions against sexual violence. So Katie gives some great resources in this conversation. She has a blog on Psychology Today called Invisible Bruises. She offers training, support, online resources. She has a Facebook group. So you'll hear all about that in in our conversation. But for now, let's just dive right in to my conversation with Katie Gillis. Hi, welcome back to Therapy Chat. I'm your host, Laura Reagan, and today I'm so excited to be talking with Katie Gillis, LCSW. Katie, thank you so much for being my guest on Therapy Chat today. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be talking to you today. Me too. And we're going to talk about a subject that is sensitive, but extremely important to get out in the open. And I think for listeners, whether you're a therapist or not, this is a subject that you're going to encounter and you need to know what we're going to share, especially Katie. So, and that subject is talking about intimate partner violence and stalking. So before we get into that, let's just start off by you telling our audience a little bit more about who you are and what you do. All right. So hi, everyone. I'm Katie. I am a licensed clinical social worker. I work a lot with people who are survivors of family trauma and domestic violence, whether that be intimate partner violence or dysfunctional family, family trauma, things like that. And so I work a lot with helping survivors move forward and especially navigating the legal system to find find support and find protection. Couldn't remember if you wanted me to say anything else. I'm sorry. (laughs) Oh yeah. No, I mean, let them know about your recent book. I think that that is very important. Um, I just published a book last year called Invisible Bruises for helping survivors navigate the legal system to find protection, specifically for protection orders from intimate partner violence and things like that. I focus on non-physical forms of domestic violence, particularly stalking, harassment, and, and things like that that are really harder to prove in the legal system. And so survivors find that they almost need kind of like a roadmap to help them navigate the legal system. And so I started, you know, as just kind of making, you know, sticky notes and kind of coming up with techniques that I would share with people. And then it turned into, you know, kind of like a manuscript and then I I published it. So it, you know, it has helped a lot of people really 
navigate, you know, how to feel comfortable in the courtroom with opposing counsel, things like that, um, techniques for communication when you have to communicate with them and, and things like that for helping them. Wonderful. So I think your book is wonderful and I think it's sorely needed because I will admit I have background in knowing about domestic violence from, you know, past work and training, but even with that, if people are in abusive relationships, a lot of times the only way I know to guide them like of what to do next with wherever they are mm-hmm. is to call a domestic violence hotline or, mm-hmm. you know, reach out to a domestic violence services agency. And the fact that you're covering this in your book is like, I mean, it's a no brainer. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I haven't heard of other books like this, but the process of navigating the legal system as a survivor of domestic violence, family violence is so overwhelming. And it's also not like, it's not what people think. It's not how they expect it to be. You know, like Mm -hmm. I'll tell the wrong that was done to me and justice Mm -hmm. will be served and that's it, you know? No, I mean, the the burden of proof is really on the survivor. It's really on the victim. And our legal system is set up to protect perpetrators. Our our legal system is set up to protect criminals. I mean, criminal justice. And that is the basis of our legal system is that we would rather put, I would rather a guilty person go free than lock up an innocent person. And I understand that, you know, the premise of that is set up to protect all of us. However, what ends up happening is the burden of proof is really on the victim and the burden is is the burden of proof and the burden of, you know, proving beyond a reasonable doubt too. And, you know, and they, they always have, uh, the perpetrators always have a lot of, you know, excuses and a lot of benefits of the doubt and things like that. And so, you know, everything from filing paperwork to dealing with counsel, opposing counsel, to dealing with the amount of times you have to go back and forth to court just to get a protection order, that it almost becomes that the perpetrator is almost irrelevant at that point because the court system almost becomes the new perpetrator. You're abused through the court system because, you know, it becomes almost a part-time job or a full-time job just to get protection. Yeah, it should not be that way, but that yeah. is kind of the way it's set up right now mm-hmm. that... And I think it's impossible to overlook the part that the patriarchal system plays that, you know, I think we don't like to think that this really happens as much as it does, you know, just like all other forms of abuse. We just want to, in our culture, kind of like sweep it away and and, and we're raised in our culture to almost ignore it. You know, especially if you grow up in any kind of, you know, conservative area, you know, some faiths are you're raised to really ignore that, especially, you know, women growing up in certain faiths. And so a lot of times, you know, a lot of my clients are said, you know, they say this is, you know, kind of, you know, this is what I, my burden to bear. This is something I have to kind of put up with, you know, my family will never support me. And so outing the perpetrator means going against their family, going against their church. And that's, you know, the main character in my book is a Christian woman and she has to go against her church in order to get protection. And she talks about that being something that's a huge problem for her because, you know, she was raised for to uh, practice forgiveness and things like that. And she was raised that divorce is a sin. And that is a huge thing that a lot of my clients, especially living here in Louisiana, that's a huge thing that, that comes up. And especially in the legal system, you know, the New Orleans has a very different legal system than you know, any other, we have the Napoleonic codes and stuff like that. And I know which means like nothing to anyone outside of Louisiana, but um, I just picture like, 
like a man in a yes. white wig with a long like coat yeah. and tails like anything you picture is probably scroll what's going on yes it's, very, it's a lot of stuff that just kind of doesn't necessarily make kind of sense to a lot of people who I know I'm not from here I'm from Maine and so uh, you know a lot of the stuff to me I'm kind of turning my head like what you know but it, it, the the faith that that Louisiana was founded on is is represented in a lot of our legal codes and and stuff like that and so you know and the patriarchal society is really represented you know when victims go in to get a protection order a lot of times I mean you know that not all the time it is getting better but the judge is a man the opposing counsel is a man you know and you know and and a lot of times and of course you know many of my clients who are victims are men themselves if they're not always women but a lot of times you are fighting against that like you know that idea in society of you know having to kind of prove yourself and having to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that this happened to you and then prove that you need protection on top of that yeah society that they're like well okay well it's over now this is normal relationship stuff this is normal breakup stuff why can't you just let it go why can't you just move on right yes so I think you're making me think about so many different things I don't want to get ahead of myself but one thing that I think would be a good idea as we start talking about this topic is to kind of define what are we talking about when we're talking about, you know, family violence and domestic violence. Okay. So I I like to say, I like to talk about, you know, family violence and domestic violence. A lot of times what happens is people use the terms that are changeably and and they aren't aren't always interchangeable Mm -hmm. in family violence. It could be, you know, a child growing up and seeing you know, mom hit dad or dad hit aunt Sally or anything like that. Dad hitting brother John, any, anything like that. And it's also even things that aren't hitting, you know, neglect in a family, emotional abuse is huge. I see a lot of damage done to, to people who are children of emotional neglect and children of, of physical neglect and things like that. That's lasting damage. Domestic violence are things like stalking, you know, things, of course, there's the physical violence, but what happens is you know, do do like a quick Google search and you'll come up with hundreds of thousands of pictures of cross times graphic and of uh, physical violence because we live in a society that assumes that most domestic violence is physical and but it, unfortunately it's not I mean there's psychological there's stalking you know things like that harassment financial of course verbal yeah verbal all of that stuff and so you know, I always like to talk about, you know, I really focus on the non-physical aspects and I, I've quoted it so many times that I can almost remember the dictionary uh, definition of stalking. It's a, a pattern of unwanted behavior that would make a reasonable person feel, you know, unsafe or feel uh, in fear for their, their life and their safety. Sure, it's probably pretty close to the, the definition that's used on a protection order. I've seen so many of them. So I always like to say, you know, start by that, but I always like to follow up by saying, you know, that that's something that's very vague. Yes. Very, very much so. Because, you know, what does that mean? You know what I mean? Like to, yeah, that's the definition, but to a victim that's going in and saying to a judge, you know, they're stalking me. Okay. A reasonable person would feel unsafe if someone's driving by their house all hours of the night. But the burden of proof is on the victim to prove A, that that's their car, B, that they're in the car, C, that they, what is their intention for stopping the car, you know, D, were they on the street for any other reason? I mean, it it becomes, the burden of proof is so burdensome, so cumbersome that it, it almost becomes that the perpetrators are relevant. So the gray area, like stalking the gray area is just so so immense. You know, the protection order will say that you can't come within, usually it's like 150 yards, depending on the state. 
And usually they give them you know, six months, 18 months, something like that. And usually is what they give for a protection order. And, but again, within that protection order, you know, what is, what does that mean? 150 yards? Does that mean they can't drive by you in traffic? Does that mean they can't drive by your house? And if they do, what do you do? The police will say, well, call us. Okay. You call the police. By the time the police get there, they're gone. Does that mean that, you know, that they can't call and make false allegations to DCFS or DFS or whatever, you know, the child abuse hotline, whatever you call it in, in your state? Does it mean that they can't make false complaints to your licensing board? Does it mean that they can't, you know, vandalize your home? I mean, all, all of those things, you know, that we think of stalking as just being like, you know, the stereotype of like the, the guy following you home from work and leaving flowers on your car. And that's really the stereotype of stalking. And it's not, it is, it's monitoring people on social media. It's, you know, trying to interfere with their livelihood, trying to affect their employment, trying, you know, making false complaints to their employer trying to get their children taken away, you know, just for retaliation and that kind of stuff. What about would, would revenge porn fit in there? Yes. Revenge porn and revenge posting. And what I mean by revenge posting are things like, like, let's, you know, let's say John Smith breaks up with Sally Q and, and, you know, and Sally Q is so upset that she writes, you know, John, you know, this is really his relationship with his mother. This is his mental health diagnosis. This is, Mm. you know, insert all of the personal things that he doesn't want everyone to know because you're in a relationship with someone you're going to know their their secrets you're you're going to know their intimate things in their life that that they don't want other people to know I mean that's part of an intimate relationship and that's stuff that it's abusive to go and then like slander not necessarily slander I mean because a lot of it's true but I mean going and telling the world all of their intimate you know secrets and intimate things it's almost like you know, putting their diary on the, on Facebook or Instagram for the world to see. I mean, so yeah. Re- re- yeah like weaponizing their yeah. personal information to. That's a perfect that. way to put it. It's a perfect way to put yeah. it. Weaponizing, weaponizing their personal information is, you know, the revenge posting is, it's just like the revenge porn. I mean, it's an intimate part of a person that they, that was meant for your eyes only. And that's abusive to go and reveal that to everyone. But what ends up happening is revenge porn only in our lifetime has been able to be. We found a name for it and it's made illegal. illegal. The word, like what's the word that means like criminalized. Thank you. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, it has only recently become criminalized. However, revenge posting is not. So you can legally go on Facebook and say, Laura did, you know, this and that, and this was her diagnosis, and this is her relationship with her mother, and this is what happened with her mentally ill sister, and I mean, and this is a picture of her when she was released from the hospital. I mean, horrible things like that are allowed to be broadcast on social media because they're seen by our judicial system as just being normal relationship stuff, you know, all that's that's just a normal part of a breakup, you know, and the police always say when I try to help clients through these situations, the police will say, look, just delete your Facebook. Don't look at it. Block them. You know, there's so much victim blaming. Just delete your Instagram. Just don't look at it. Are you kidding me? I mean, would you say that to someone, you know, they used to say that for revenge porn, you know, when they'd go in and say, look, he's posting all these naked pictures of me or naked videos. And they'd say, okay, just don't look at it. I mean, there's my naked videos all over the internet for the world to see. And it's the same thing. That's my, you know, my intimate and it's, you know, a perp- it's an intentionally yeah. to humiliate you or to hurt you. Yes. It's not just sharing. Oh, wow. I'm so proud of my ex-partner's mm-hmm. fantastic body. It's not mm-hmm. that. It's 
is to humiliate and degrade them. It's intentionally knowingly humiliate, knowingly humiliate and degrade them. Absolutely. That's a perfect way. It's a perfect way to put it because it's it's absolutely true. And that's what makes it abusive. That's the difference between posting, oh, I'm so upset. I just had my heart broken. This was the person who I loved and I'm so upset. Yada, yada, yada. That's different than saying, here's a naked picture of her for everyone to see. Here's all of her intimate secrets for everyone to see. That's what makes it abusive. Yeah. Yeah. It's like that idea of wanting other people to pile on Mm -hmm. against the person. And that's a lot of times what people do too is, you know, unfortunately we live in a society where a lot of people like the drama and they, they'll go on and, oh, let me look at this one. And let me, okay, let me go to her Facebook and see if she's saying anything back. And that's why the number one thing I tell my clients is don't react. Don't say anything. Don't post anything back. Don't try to refute all the claims. Don't react. And I, I know that that sometimes sounds, you know, victim blaming, but I mean, it's the number one thing that people say, people who specialize in narcissistic abuse, people who specialize in stalking this number one thing that they say is you cannot react because it will fuel it. Yeah. But, and I would say too, you know, it's not victim blaming. If you're saying don't react because that just feeds it, document it. Document it, take screenshots. Yes. Take screenshots, take video recordings, document it, you know, any emails that are sent, print them out, print the screenshots out with the date and time and keep it. Even if you're like, oh, they're probably going to calm down. No. And even if, you know, if you blocked them and other people send them to you, you know, keep the screenshots, don't react, but just keep the screenshots. And I always recommend blocking people, not because it prevents them from seeing your stuff, because we know with the internet that your stuff's never really hundred percent private, but it keeps you from being triggered by seeing them. Yes. Yeah. And so inadvertently doing something that might yes. potentially, and this isn't, I think this is a warning for the right reasons, like, because it's so emotional that you might, you know, feel the urge to cuss them out online or mm-hmm. do something like that if you get triggered. And then they go, well, look what she did to me or he, they mm-hmm. did to me. And, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, it happens and it's, it's part of, how we react to trauma at times. So if that happens, it's something to like shame yourself about, but you know, the the person thrives on, you know, the power dynamic that they have more power and they can force, they can like get you to react a certain way is, is kind of like the whole driving force behind the behavior that they're doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Everything is done to try to get you to react. So that way they can prove because the, the MO of many abusive people, the MO of most perpetrators is to claim that they were the one who's been victimized almost to excuse their behavior saying, no, you know, they were abusive. That's why I did this because, you know, to them, all of their behavior is excused. You know, every false allegation, every lie, everything that they post about you, everything that they do to you is, is excusable because of blank, because of you were abusive because you did this or you did that. So keeping in mind that that's their MO is to go and say that they were abused. So that's why I always tell people, don't give them any fuel. Don't give them anything to, you know, kind of prove that or anything to put in their corner. You want to, you want right. your hands to be clean, especially if you have to go to court for a protection order. You want your hands clean, which I know is as really much hard. As you can. Yeah, I know, and I know it's really hard. I know because who the heck can sit there and watch all these horrible allegations come up about them, just coming out of left field and left and right, and every day you wake up and there's, you know complaints to your boss and complaints to about your uh, children to DCFS and you know things like that I mean it's constant so I mean 
who the heck can sit there and and put up with that again and again and again i mean that's you know it's extremely humiliated and extremely difficult yeah it's like psychological Mm -hmm. warfare for sure psychological warfare Yep, it is. Yeah. yeah. So I want to I want to include the point that you specifically also focus in working with LGBTQ plus mm-hmm. survivors of this form of stalking. And can you say something about or of stalking and and these types mm-hmm. of violence? Can you say a little bit about the particular issues that are common? for LGBTQ survivors plus? So a lot of times what happens is I find that people who don't fit the, the stereotypical you know, gender who we think is going to be the gender of a perpetrator or the gender of a victim are people who aren't as believed. And what I mean by that is you know, men who go in and say that they're being stalked by a woman or men who say they're being abused by a woman. I mean, especially here in Louisiana, that's, I've, I've seen men almost get laughed at by the police. You know, judges are like, huh? You know, and not all the time. I mean, it is changing. It's 2022. I like to think that we're going in a better direction with this, but it does happen. A lot, it is extremely hard to prove, you know, for regardless of the, the gender of the victim, it is extremely hard to prove almost that a perpetrator, a female, a perpetrator is a female. Just because our society does not want to view females as being dangerous. Our society likes to assign men the role of perpetrator and female the role of victim. However, what ends up happening is a lot of times it's just the way that gender is, that we're conditioned in our gender, but females tend to do a lot of the like the non-physical forms of domestic violence, which are harder to prove anyway. So females tend to do more of like the stalking and the psychological abuse, psychological warfare and that kind of stuff, which are already harder to prove. So, Mm. you know, then then that's harder. And so, and then a lot of clients, a lot of my clients, they, you know, a lot of my LGBTQ clients say, you know, I I don't want to out myself. You know, if I go in and because when you fill out a protection order, you have to check how you know the person and you have to check out like why this person would be, why you'd meet criteria for a protection order, because you can't just go get a protection order. I don't know, but every state, but in this state, you can't just go get a protection order against like, you know, a friend or something like that. It would have to be like a family member, former cohabitating partner, roommate, something like that. So, you know, a lot of times that would mean outing yourself, you know, by saying this is a former dating partner, you have to put you know, your gender, their gender. And a lot of times this, you know, is something that you have to out yourself against your family. You have to out yourself, you know, to to your faith. If your faith means a lot to you, you have to out yourself to your community, to your employer and, and things like that. So it's really hard for a lot of my clients to really, you know, kind of weigh that decision of what, how do I want to navigate this? Yeah. To, to go into seeking protection from the legal system, mm-hmm. those barriers are even it's very difficult for survivors across the board and those particular barriers just add another layer of Mm -hmm. what a perpetrator can use against you. Like you were saying, like revenge posting to, you know, Mm -hmm. outing someone. Yeah. Like if you, if you report me for this, I'll, I mean the, the threats, like, you know, kind of going back to stalking, you know, threats like are a part of the stalking. You know, we think of stalking as just being like the following you around. No, it's the threats, it's the harassment, it's the actions that are put to intimidate you, to remind you who's in control. 
And a lot of times, a lot of the the threats that people say are things like, you know, if you leave, I'll out you. If you leave, I'll ruin your career. If you leave, I'll I'll keep the children and you'll never see them again. Those are common things that people say. And so, you know, if, if you're being threatened that you're going to be outed, I mean, in Louisiana, you could you could lose your children if you're outed. You could lose your employment if you're outed. You know, we don't have the same level of protection for both parents, for LGBTQ clients, or, you know, LGBTQ people. It's not the same, you know, and so a lot of times that is a real fear that people have. You know, I don't have the same legal rights to my kids as they did, so I can't, you know, take my kids or I can't be with my kids. That's a common thing I hear people say. So like if maybe one parent is biologically related to the children and the yes. other parent isn't, then they don't have legal rights mm-hmm. the same. Yeah. Yeah. Which is like, I mean, if, cause if you think of it, like, let's say that you take like, you know, a cisgender couple, a straight couple where, I mean, we don't, we don't know if we meet a couple, we don't know if, if she had the baby biologically and it's wasn't his, bio, we just don't know because it's none of our business. But what ends up happening is, you know, with a gay couple, it, it, there's, you know, always like, we feel More like scrutiny. Yeah. Like, well, whose kid is it biologically? And did they use a sperm donor and da da da. And so a lot of times, you know, especially, you know, maybe more so with women, but there is one who's like the biological carrier of the child sometimes. And, you know, and a lot of times that is used against them in court, you know, oh, I carried the child biologically. And, and that is so new for, you know, for some court systems that they're just like, oh, okay, well, we'll, you know, just assign guardianship then to the mother and, you know, and then the, the partner or, you know, or the father or whatever, the other guardian is then saying, okay, well now, so now what, I can't see my kids just because of, I dared leave this relationship. So it's the retaliation. Yeah. Yeah. It's like really using the court system and the legal system to to further the abuse, further it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so sure. it's like in one way, the system can have its own traumatic impact on someone, mm-hmm. but then there's the way that the perpetrator can use mm-hmm. the system to abuse the, the other partner too. Yeah, the perpetrator almost becomes irrelevant because they use the, the legal system and the court system and, and not just, you know, the court system, but like other, you know, other forms of power. So like DCFS, you know, licensing yeah. boards, regula- regulatory boards and things like that, that you know, the perpetrator is almost irrelevant. They, the court system does their dirty work for them. Mm. Yeah. And so much of it is legal because it's blurring the lines because you legally have a right to to make false allegations. I mean, okay, no, you don't have a right to make false allegations, but you have a right to, and I'm, you know, I know the audience can see, but I'm putting my fingers up like in quotations, you have a right to make like a reasonable suspicion of you know, a, a complaint. And so a lot of times that's used to people's advantage, like, oh, well, I think he's abusing the children. So I'm going to put in a complaint and then mm-hmm. there we go, you know, and it's done just for, for pure retaliation. Yeah. Which mm-hmm. then hurts, you know, other mm-hmm. victims down the line because there's not believed because, oh, is mm-hmm. there a custody case, you know? So, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. so it, it's so tangled. It's so tangled. Yeah. I know. And, and it's so hard because the, you know, the, the police, a lot of times, you know, I, I work with a lot of law enforcement, I have good friends in law enforcement, and they'll say to me, like, Katie, our hands are tied, you know, unless there's, unless we go out there and we see, and I'm, I'm going to be graphic because I'm speaking, you know, like a law enforcement person, but 
they'll say, unless you go out there and there's, you know, there's a weapon and then there's blood and there's bruises, you know, we don't know what to do. We're not trained in that, which is true. Just like I'm not trained to make an arrest or a drug bust. It's not my area. It's not their area. Unless they come out and they see bruises and broken bones, they don't know what to do. And, and so a lot of times, I mean, the police are like, our hands are tied. We don't know what to do. And, you know, even the limitations of the protection orders, the police sit there and they kind of scratch their heads like, well, you know, I mean, technically she has a right to drive by the house. And then the other cop who's standing right next to him, you know, because they usually work in pairs, will, will then say, well, no, she doesn't have a right to buy, drive by the house because she can't be within 150 yards. But then the other one says, but it's a public road. And the other one says, but she could take another. I mean, it's like, you'll sit yeah. there and watch the two of them go back and forth. And it's like, if law enforcement is debating it among themselves, then how are, how is the public supposed to know what to do? <laughs> yeah, it reminds me because we saw video of the young couple. The Gabby Gabby Patio. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so many survivors and so many, you know, in the domestic violence community, in the survivor community, so many, when they saw that video of Gabby, so many were saying, no, there's something going on because she was just so upset and he was yeah. so calm. And, you know, and he kept saying, oh, I don't know. She doesn't have her medicine and she's got OCD and she's got, anytime you see someone like pointing at someone's mental health concerns, I, always kind of question that like why why are you pointing the finger at an, you know another person what's going on here why are you trying to point the finger away from yourself you know what what's going on um you know but a lot yeah a lot of people were questioning that yeah yeah well and and that dynamic is common that the perpetrator is usually calm mm-hmm. and the victim is usually hysterical mm-hmm. and if the cops because they don't have the training to really mm-hmm. it's not like they're a forensic you know to, yeah yeah expert in domestic violence right so they show up yeah. and they're like see one person acting out of control yeah. and one person acting calm they naturally think the out of control one is it's, the problem and that makes sense it's kind of human instinct almost to if you show up to a scene and there's one person who's calm it's almost instinctual to kind of gravitate towards kind of talking and and speaking and conversing more with that person who's calm because you know that you think that they're going to give you, you know, a more rational part of the story. Running a group private practice has been a challenging and rewarding experience. And one thing that has made it so much easier is Therapy Notes. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. If you're coming from another EHR, like I did, Therapy Notes makes the transition incredibly easy, importing your demographic data free of charge so you can get going right away. My team has found Therapy Notes very easy to learn. It's intuitive. The customer support is second to none. And that's one of the things that has kept me a Therapy Notes customer for several years now. Anytime I've needed to contact Therapy Notes for help with an issue I couldn't figure out on my own, I've been able to get through to someone and resolve the issue within 15 minutes, 99% of the time. Find out what more than 100,000 mental health professionals already know. Try Therapy Notes for two months absolutely free. Just click on the link in the show notes or enter the promo code chat at therapynotes.com. Yeah, even it's probably more comfortable, really. I mean, if yeah, you yeah. know, just go like, oh man, this person seems well. Oh, of okay. course, what's this person is here. What's happening? Was, yeah, yeah. And that's how it was with that video with the Gabby Petito and the 
John, I can't remember the person. I can't remember name. his name, but yeah. yeah but, but the she, it was like you can see how the cops actually weren't. They weren't saying, "Oh yeah, like women are crazy." Good thing you gave mm-hmm. her a smack. You know, they're not like supporting intentionally supporting domestic violence but by their own bias that they don't Mm -hmm. realize they see and they they just don't have the discernment because they don't Mm -hmm. have the training it's not but then there's the other piece which is like our cultural conditioning patriarchal which um, is bias in and of itself we're conditioned we're conditioned for bias or we're conditioned that you know, it, and it kind of goes back to when, you know, in like our great grandmother's days when they used to hospitalize women for being hysterical and things like that and hospitalized not just for days, but hospitalized for years. And it was completely fine for her husband to just put her away. Now, I mean, that was 1800s. And of course, we've changed a lot. But, you know, it through the 50s lot. and 60s of 1900s. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, like we have, but we haven't, you know, those are still the the people who lived back then were the people who made the laws that are still in the books today and, and things like that. So it takes a long time to, to change minds and to change. And there are so many biases like with the police and with law enforcement, and, you know, it's the good old boys club. And, you know, and unfortunately there's a lot of domestic violence in, in law enforcement and, you know, and then they are, you know, they, they, they want to protect their themselves and they want to protect their, their brothers in blue and stuff like that. And, you know, and, and okay, you know, and, but a lot of times it is just hard because there are so many biases, like, and you're fighting against that. And it's, it's so much of like, you know, that assumption that, you know, this, this should really stay in the home type, mm-hmm. you know, you kind of get that reaction from the police of like, you know, especially the older ones. And I know, it, you know, I hate to kind of what happens behind it. closed doors is other yeah. people's business. It's not my business. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of times that's what happens, you know, and they'll say, you know, comments like that, like, okay, isn't this a normal part of breaking up? Can't you just move on? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. That's, I think that's one of the most frustrating things. Yeah. Because like, I think, what do I do? Exactly. And that's one of the, the parts it's frustrating, but it's scary too, because there's so many, to me, it's scary. There's so many barriers preventing people from receiving legal protection in these mm-hmm. situations. But, you know, people are at high risk mm-hmm. of physical danger, even if the abuse had been more non-physical. I don't know if I'm wrong on that, because please feel free to correct me. I didn't write a book and you did, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I know when people leave, they're at yeah, high risk. They are. When when they leave, they, they are. That's the worst time. It's the most dangerous time for a victim is when they leave a relationship. And, and there is a pattern of domestic violence that does, it, it does escalate. It does follow a pattern, you know, and there is, the, you know, if, if someone's stalking you, the chances of them assaulting you are, are high. The much higher, and if they've already assaulted you, the chances chances of them harming you again, you know, if they've if they vandalized your home or your property, you know, the chances go up. If they there, you know, and there are certain criteria, like if they've made threats, you know, that kind of and it, it, there's like escalation points, you know, and like each, um, I can't remember the thing that it's called, but there's um, it's I think it's called like a severity scale. I'm trying to remember what it's called and. The lethality like, assessment? I think maybe. I think maybe that's yeah. And like each one is a, is a certain point. And oh yeah. And, long, and, and you know, and a lot of times, you know, things like that. I mean, I I don't usually see that used a lot in court. Unfortunately, it's really only you know when I was doing research for my book, I found it. But 
unfortunately, you know, people don't, you know, really use that. But yeah, everything is given a point. So have they vandalized your home? Have they made threats? Have they assaulted you? And have they stalked you? I mean, those, those things right there, your chances of being killed, you know, quite frankly, go up. Right. And if, if they've ever like, strangled you there's there's a high risk of lethality of death from being strangled and people you know don't think of it as being that serious like oh he had his hands around my throat Mm -hmm. it was very it was very quick you know Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I could catch my breath I was able to catch my breath I was okay you know but I mean he didn't mean it yeah Yeah. kind of the moment and there's so much of that yeah and and that's the thing is that people don't realize is that it it, it, there is a pattern of behavior and there's a pattern of escalation this is not and what happens is each time someone does something like that like if if they strangle someone if they vandalize their home if they stalk them each thing is viewed in isolation so the police will view that as one one thing of assault you know, and then if they do something else, that's, that's another charge of assault. Vandalism is something else. So, so instead we're looking at, you know, several pieces to a puzzle that are all spread out instead of looking at it. No, this is a puzzle. These pieces fit together and they, and the really law enforcement and, and our judicial system should look at it like that. We should be looking at it like, you know, no, these, these pieces all fit together in a very specific way. They're a pattern of behavior. When we look at them as isolated incidents, it's, it's easy to kind of discount, oh, well, they were just angry and they vandalized her home, you know, or they were just, he was just angry and he choked her. She was just angry and she, whatever. Crimes of passion. Yes. We need to look at it. It's a pattern of behavior. This is not one time and then one time and one time. This is a pattern. How many boxes have they checked on this scale and on this list? Yeah, that's a great point. And I think that's why documenting is so important. Like mm-hmm. I've told so many people, like just jot down every time yep. they call you what they said. Mm-hmm. And every, you know, if they called you 56 times today, just mm-hmm. jot down November 2nd, 56 missed calls, you know? And- yeah, take screenshots, take a screenshot of the missed call and take a screenshot of the phone number. A lot of times what will happen is people will just have the, like the name John Smith, 52 missed calls. Do some, I don't know what kind of phone you have, but if you can like click on it and open it up. So where it says the phone number, you know, like nine, 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 whatever, open it up and take a screenshot of that because in court, John Smith, it won't matter because you can change any phone number to John Smith. So any opposing counsel will challenge that. So you want to see the actual phone number. You want to take a screenshot of that. And then I always tell people keep a diary because I've seen diary entries get people protection orders more often than you'd think because something that happened June 2nd, you know, a year ago, the judge says, yeah, I'll, I'll honor it because it's in your diary, you know? And Isn't I, that like, funny? It's like, if you yeah. say it happened on June 2nd, they're like, well, how do I know that's true? And then you mm-hmm. go, it's in my diary. And they're in like, my diary. oh, okay. And you're like, well, that's a, why didn't my words have as much, you know, weight as many, what yeah, I no. show you in my diary? But okay. <laughs> if I've that's what I have to do. Judges, yeah. Say, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll honor <laughs> it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I always tell people keep a diary, you know, take screenshots and document other ways, but also keep a diary if you can. And there's also something called victim's voice and you can go on and you can document that way. It's like an online way of like documenting incidences and things like that. So is it public? Like it's like a forum or it's just like something that you can it's like you can log in and it's your way that you track what's gone on. It's it's actually, you, you can create like a website and you can create, here, I'm trying to pull up the app so I can c- kind of describe it a little bit more, but 
there's ways for you to go in and like, it'll tell you what information to document. So you uh-huh. can, yeah, and it'll tell you like, because a lot of times what happens is people don't know how to document. And so they over or they under document. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I know you're people are probably saying like, why does it matter if you over document? If you over document, then it can look petty to court. And, you know, the judge, I've seen judges throw it out because it looks like you're being petty and it looks like you're just trying to find faults. So it'll tell you what to document. It'll tell you like, you know, time stamps, like how to document bruises, how to document, you know, if you have things, if you have a nest camera, ring camera, how to save the videos and that kind of stuff. It's called victims of voice. And I always, you know, recommend that to people. Is that a free app? So it's actually an app. Yeah. And it's a victim's voice. It's like all one victim's voice. And then you can go to, you know, like Play Store or Apple or anything like that. So it's like victim's voice app. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. You know, it's like, as I'm hearing you say about them saying it's petty, it's like Mm -hmm. this overarching, I just have to say it out loud. There's just like this overarching dismissiveness Mm -hmm. about victims' experiences. And, you know, it's like, oh, you're making such a big deal out of nothing. Or can't you just let it go? And, you know, it's... This is normal breakup. Oh, frustrating. So Mm -hmm. frustrating to hear that. Because it really is anything domestic. Like the second you hear domestic, I mean, I I have a really good friend who works for law enforcement and I, you know, I've been with him before and they'll, you know, there are certain codes for domestic, you know, and and I'll see people just kind of roll their, oh, domestic, I don't want to go to this domestic. And you know, and it's so interesting, you know, it's like, look, like, you know, like the stigma around it and how much it's dismissed as just being like, oh, household stuff. That's just, just another couple arguing. Yeah. Yeah. When really, like, if you look at crime, yeah, this type of crime is probably more prevalent than gun violence and yeah. all of that. And it's happening in people's homes, whether it's mm-hmm. domestic violence, sexual violence, Mm-hmm. They are so prevalent. Yeah, it's actually, I mean, I, I, you know, I quoted someone in my, in my book as this famous quote, you know, that I don't know if it's famous, it's famous for me. It's stuck with me. It's, you know, that domestic violence homicides should be called preventable homicides, you know, because, you know, they're perfect. Because if you follow the pattern of behavior and the escalation, the person is leaving you a verbal and physical roadmap of what they're doing rarely is it just kind of a one-off and it does happen. I don't want to dismiss that. It does happen that there are, you know, random acts of violence and then, you know, murder and things like that. But usually there's, you know, escalation, you know, but usually what ends up happening is that when a victim is murdered by their partner, usually they have gone to the police multiple times. They've tried to seek a protection order multiple times. That's usually what ends up happening. And then they sometimes the protection order is end up is denied and sometimes not. I mean, the piece of paper doesn't stop someone from coming and harming you. So, you know, many people are killed every day with a protection order in place. Well, so as you say that, and I, I'm very aware of that too, it's just a piece of paper, but why is a protective order worth, what's the reason that it would be worthwhile for people to go ahead and pursue it anyway? So that thing, I'm really glad you said that because I, I do want to tell people that I, I always recommend you get one anyway. You know, of course I, you know, I'll say things like, you know, that it's just a piece of paper, or, you know, and I know it does sound like I'm saying that this is kind of tedious and burdensome and it is, but I, I always recommend doing it anyway, because at the, it does create a paper trail in the lease. It does create a paper trail. You know, even if it is denied, there's a record with the court and, um, you know, and you can go in and you can ask for, you know, amendments and you can ask for, you know, extensions and stuff like that. 
And if you do have a protection order, then it is easier, you know, if you call the police, the police respond faster. And, you know, and it is nationwide, you know, if I have a protection order in California, it's, it's, it's uh, legal in New Hampshire, you know, and so it, you know, it's not like the person can really kind of, you know, jump out and jump away from that. So I always recommend to survivors to get, to get one, to get a protection order and to still go to the police, even though it's tedious. And even though I'm going to, you know, I'm sitting there and kind of gripe about it and, and all that. I still recommend doing it. Because yeah, me too. Because I, for, in my experience, I've only lived in two states, Virginia and Maryland. But in mm-hmm. those both states, if you have a protective order, like if Johnny calls Susie a hundred mm-hmm. times, mm-hmm. she can call the police and say he's mm-hmm. harassing me over the phone. Mm-hmm. And they're like, oh, well, you can go down here. They'll say you can go to the commissioner and try to press charges if you want. They're not even going to come to you for that. But yeah, yeah. But if you say I have a protective order and he's called Mm -hmm. me a hundred times, then he's actually breaking a law by violating the protective order, and that and then um, it's criminal. That's criminal. It's a criminal. They're violating a criminal law versus civil, Mm -hmm. right? So it's like it's almost easier to prove violation of a protective order than it is to prove like an assault, Mm -hmm. where the court sees it as he said, she said. Not that you. You know, if you feel like you want to report that, it's totally valid to do so. But if you get the protective order and then the person is still doing the behavior and you can Mm -hmm. report that and it's documented, then that's what they will be. Mm -hmm. That's where they get the, you know, diversionary intervention. Yeah. And sometimes that does, that does work. A lot of times, you know, it's, you know, phone calls are, are one of those things like I've, I've seen cases get thrown out because people say, oh, you know, it was a butt dial and that kind of stuff. That's, that's pretty common unless they leave a voicemail that's pretty threatening. But and again, it it's so hard, you know, the burden, there's so many burdens in on the on the victim to prove then you have to prove it. How do I know it's their voice? How do I know? I mean, it, but I say all that to say, you still do it anyway, you know, make the police report anyway, apply for the protection order anyway. You know, I have a lot of tips in my book that will go over like how to do that, how to make sure that you can, you know, document things correctly, how to like when you know that you're going to start preparing to leave, how to how to start doing that, how to react, you know, when you have the protection order and then that kind of stuff really to help navigate that. Awesome. And yeah, and I mean, it's, I don't think it's, it's not like a a strategy to subvert the process of reporting, Mm -hmm. you know, but when someone is using verbal, emotional abuse, course Mm -hmm. of control, you know, threats, it's a lot harder to prove those things Mm -hmm. as crimes in them of themselves. Mm -hmm. It's almost like the protective order says this person's not allowed to bother me anymore. And then mm-hmm. when they, if they keep doing it, that's where you have some teeth in the legal system. Mm-hmm. I think. And that's why I, I mean, tell people get, yeah, yeah, you're right. And I always tell people get really specific with the protection order. Like, you know, like list, list your work address and your home address, you know, don't, don't think that it's going to be implied that nothing is implied in the law, you know, always be very specific, you know, write down that they cannot call your employer, write down that they cannot show up at the restaurant that you you know, bartend out on Saturday mornings or whatever. Yeah. So can we go over a little bit? A couple of the things that stand out to me around this topic are that people, you know, when we go back to that idea of a reasonable person would feel unsafe or in fear for their life, I think Mm -hmm. that's where people get hung up is like, oh, well, not Mm -hmm. life threatening because he Mm -hmm. drove by my house 
52 times in an hour it's mm-hmm. not really like threatening so i don't know mm-hmm. yeah i mean making you know multiple you know allegations to dcfs isn't really life-threatening i know it, and it, that's why we say that there is so much of a gray area with stalking and but i always want to tell people that we cannot you know and i always want to tell you know therapists clients law enforcement mental health professional mental um you know medical professional that there is a pattern of behavior so okay maybe you're right maybe the driving by your house 52 times is not life-threatening but there you know the, there's a, a chain of events and it's escalating and then the, the next thing okay so the next thing is vandalism you know, and then after they've done that, the next thing is assault, you know, and it, and it yeah. doesn't always necessarily follow that pattern, but it does follow a pattern of escalation. And so if we ignore the driving by the house 52 times and we ignore the, you know, calling someone's boss or showing up at someone's job, you know, seven times in one week, if we ignore all that, then it tells them that the behavior is acceptable and then it'll continue to escalate. Right, right. So it's, it's sort of like, I think maybe a better gauge for the person individually. It's just like, do I feel unsafe? And what mm-hmm. do I really feel about this? And, but it's hard. I too think sometimes people don't feel, they yeah. say they don't feel unsafe. And I think it's mm-hmm. because of how they're coping with how terrorized they are within the relationship. You know, I see it go either way. I, I hear some people say, oh no, psh, screw them. Let them come up to me. And yeah. I'm gonna, you know, I'm going to, I mean, I live in full disclaimer. I live in Louisiana. It's open carry, you know, yada, yada. But uh, I you know, have a lot of clients and I don't care. I'm meet them in the parking lot. And, and then I see the opposite. I see a lot of people that are so terrorized and so scared to the point of they don't want to leave their home. You know, every time a phone rings of a number that they don't know, they're scared to answer the phone every time they, you know, have an, an email from someone they don't know they're scared so it, it can go either way so I always tell people it's don't necessarily like gauge it by how you feel gauge it by the behavior that they're doing like you know get a protection order because things like this escalate don't if they're showing up at your work you know seven ten times in one week that's type of stuff escalates you know put a stop to that it doesn't matter that they're not bothering you or that you're not scared or anything like that maybe your coworkers are scared for you you know, maybe your children are scared. That's an important point. And I tell yeah. people this a lot. Most shootings that happen at workplaces yeah. are domestic violence yes. in the way they started. Yes. And anyone at that point is fair game. I mean, I've heard of situations where, the, you know, a, a coworker is, is affected or a friend or a family member or mother-in-law, things like that. And just, just keep in mind, like, you know, your roommates in your home, your, this is a huge thing right now for people who have, you know, paying attention to celebrities and social media, but you know, the new partner, when you start dating, you know, if you start dating again, you know, and you know, this Kanye West just put out that, that video about the, you know, threatening his new, his, his uh, ex-wife's new partner. That is so common with, with stalking is that the, the per- perpetrator will put out, you know, threats or try to find information about the new partner. And I always say to people, don't take that lightly. Like that is, that is following the, the behavior pattern, you know, that, that right there. And again, leaving you that, that physical roadmap. And, you know, if they're threatening the new partner, don't take that lightly, you know, don't say, oh, well, no, my partner doesn't care. And I don't really care. And they're not really going to do anything. No. What about that whole, like, oh, I'm sorry. No, I was just going to, yeah, I was just going to say like, you know, just, it's not necessarily even about you at that point. It's about all the other innocent people who are brought into it. 
Right. And I think like another way that our culture like gaslights us about this Mm -hmm. is that so many people would see that kind of, I don't actually know what Kanye West released recently. I didn't actually hear about that, but I heard before about how his new girlfriend was talking about how he showered her with gifts and you know how, and, and it was portrayed and I hope for her sake that it is, but it was portrayed as a very romantic kind of thing. And I think our Kanye West aside, I think our culture tells us like leaving roses on your car. Oh, he just wants me back or, mm-hmm. you know, showing up at your work. She's so in love with me. She just can't stand to be apart, you know, and it's like it's somehow. No, yeah, no, that's a red flag being showered. And and again, you know, celebrities are kind of like their own like breed. I mean, you know, I mean, kind of caricatures up, in a way. Yeah, they really are. So it's like, it's hard to judge, you know, but you know what I mean? Because like someone who's a multimillionaire truck full of roses is, is like nothing, you know, for us, that'd be, you know, a big, a big expense. But you know, but it isn't necessarily about the money. It's about the gesture of like, okay, this is a little over the top, you know, extravagant, from, grandiose yeah, gestures. Someone showing up at your work multiple times and it's intrusive and it's a boundary issue. You know, maybe I don't want you to meet all my coworkers when we've only been dating for three days. That kind of stuff is, I always tell people like, be wary of those, be wary of any kind of boundary violation in, in the, you know, in any kind of dating situation. Yeah. Yeah. And then like the idea of threatening the new partner is like, oh, you know, chivalry, like they're going to have oh, a duel, no. you know, it's like this old, like, yeah, romance we, like, story. Teach, yeah. We like, we teach, you know, like little girls, like, oh, like the, you know, when you watch Disney movies and oh, they're going to fight for you. And, no, 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 no. That's not, it's not funny. Yeah. He, you know, allegedly put out a video, you know, saying that, you know, calling for a hit on her new partner allegedly. And, wow. and that's the kind of stuff that is so, so, so common that I want to tell people don't take that lightly you know, they threaten the new partner and it's not just, it's not just talk a lot of times, you know, I mean, of course, are there people who do it and they just, and they just talk and then they get over it? Of of course. However, don't take it lightly. You know, I mean, the new partner, they haven't done anything to them. If they're threatening your partner, you know, absolutely threatening your coworker, threatening your family members, your sisters, your mom, mm -mm, you know, those are innocent people. Not that, not that you as the victim or survivor are not an innocent person, but these are people who aren't even relevant to the situation. Yeah. And I think it's not about like saying, Hey, survivor, it's your responsibility to protect Mm -hmm. other people from your abusive Mm -hmm. ex but it's like it's kind of like take the romance take off the Mm -hmm. rose-colored glasses and just like look at this for what it is there's threat being made Mm -hmm. to do violence to another person is that Mm -hmm. is that okay is that really normal no it's not Mm -hmm. and again like culturally it'll be like i was thinking about this with the idea of the police saying rolling their eyes when they hear it's a domestic incident it's like Mm -hmm. i think i know police know that they're most at risk in those situations of them being harmed Mm -hmm. so that's just another example of a collateral absolutely um, Absolutely. violence that can happen but also like this whole like murder suicide oh there's no threat to the community you know it's like it's like we're always like separating ourselves from Mm -hmm. the truth of how awful these things are and we you know we want to like minimize it and so like oh there's a love triangle it's just it's makes it sound frivolous but mm-hmm. you know I guess that's just a way of coping with a, something that feels like yeah because impossible like, really, to fix yeah and it makes like domestic violence victims feel really othered 
Yes. You know, it's like if you're a victim of a drive-by shooting or if you're a victim of a car accident, you know, you're a victim. You're, you know, in a situation that was you, not your Something fault. horrible happened to you. Yeah. But if you're a victim in domestic violence situation, okay, what did you do to make them angry? What did you say? Okay, can't you guys just keep this at home? Sure, you're, you're not know? blowing it out of proportion. You sure you're not blowing it out of proportion. What happened? Yeah. 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 Well, this information is super valuable, and I hope that the therapists who are listening and people who are not therapists are getting the picture that, you know, there's a pattern of behavior. Mm-hmm. There are legal options that you can use, but you have to understand how to how to work within that system mm-hmm. in order, unfortunately, in order to be able to get the protection that you should be entitled to. But that's, mm-hmm. that's what we've got right now. Yeah, that's that's how it is. Yeah. So well, one last question I want to ask you before we wrap up for today is therapists oftentimes, I think, kind of jump the gun or misunderstand what their role should be in working with survivors of abusive relationships, family violence, and intimate partner violence. What should, what do therapists like need to know about how to do their work? You know, in terms of like, should therapists call the police when their client says, you know, my partner hit me last Mm -hmm. night and things like that. So I always, first and foremost, I always want to say to therapists, please, especially if you're working with people who are 18 and older, you know, we're talking about adults here, please do not call the police. We need to first and foremost, you know, support a client's autonomy. We need to support them to make these decisions for themselves. And also you can make it a lot worse for them by calling the police. The police, you know, don't, you know, first of all, you're breaking confidentiality by doing that, but the police also don't like that when the, you know, a third party calls the police, you know, the calls them, they, they, it can make that a lot worse for them. And, and also, you know, keep in mind these people, they, they go, okay, so you go and you make a police report, but then they, they go home to these people. You know, and, you know, so then they're going home and they're living with the person and they're sleeping next to them in bed and the retaliation, you know, that they're going to experience from that is worse than the abuse that led to the phone call or led to the you know report to begin with. So please don't call the police, you know, support a client in creating a safety plan. I talk about a safety plan in my book. I talk about ways to, to start making a safety plan ways of like, you know, to start, you know, keeping, you know, money at a friend's house to start moving important documents. I, I go through all of that. That's the most important thing that you can talk about with a client and, and helping them, you know, empower them to to do that if that's a decision that they want to make. And, you know, safety plan really is the biggest thing of like having having a phone call, a, a code word that they can call and say to someone, okay, is the meeting on, you know, at work tomorrow at nine? And, you know, and that's a code for, are you okay? And if the person says yes or no, like that kind of thing, I talk about in my book of how to make sure that, you know, that there are codes and there are ways for them to stay safe. Because if you, if you blur that boundary and you, and you call the police, a lot of times it can get, you know, worse for them. So stay, stay in that role of of assisting them and empowering them and helping them create a safety plan, you know, validating them, believing them, helping them document that kind of stuff. Yeah, thank you. And I mean, I think another temptation that therapists can have is try to force the client to and leave the relationship mm-hmm. right away because mm-hmm. we get so concerned for their safety. Mm-hmm. But and as you said, yeah, that can backfire because it really has to be when the person is ready. I mean, a victim will leave an average of seven times before they'll leave 
uh, for good. And so a lot of times, you know, they could, they'll go back and then, you know, and I've seen it where they, they do blame the therapist, you know, and they say, oh, you know, my therapist made me leave. My therapist wanted me to leave. It needs to be their decision. And I understand that you're sitting there and you're saying, wow, I can't believe this is happening. I can't believe they're not seeing these red flags. I can't believe they think that they're going to change. And I understand that, you know, but do your own work, get some consultation, really, you know, you got to support them. Yeah. Because, you know, domestic violence is about power and control. And so what happens when we take away our client's power and control by, you know, trying to force them to do something they're not ready to do, whether it's calling the police to report the incident or leave the relationship before they have a safety plan in place. And before, Mm -hmm. you know, so that basically then what, you know, you can't, you can't just, then what? it's yeah. not in a vacuum. Oh, where? Right. Yeah. yeah. What about my pets? So much, what about the yeah, kids? There's so much. Yeah. Yeah. What about the kids? And yeah, there's so much involved in that, that making a safety plan is really, you know, where you need to start. Yeah. yeah. Well, Katie, this has been a really interesting and important conversation. And I know that you offer a lot of resources for people in this situation. Can you share where people can find what you have to offer? And I know your book is part of it, but that's not all. So I have a website. It is, it is my full name. It's www.caitlingillislcsw.com. Caitlin with a K, K-A-Y-T-L-Y-N, Gillis, G-I-L-L-I-S, L-C-S-W.com. And I have consultation and supervision. I provide training on domestic violence. I also offer online support resources for, for therapists and for clients, for victims, survivors, people who love them. On um, my, I have a Facebook group called Clara's Voice, and that's C L A R A Clara. And I have an Instagram under the same name, Clara's Voice. It's two underscores between Clara's and Voice, and they just kind of offer like grounding tips, like sports support tips, you know, empowerment, that kind of stuff, just for people to have daily encouragement and stuff. Free Facebook group? Yeah, it's a free Facebook group. Instagram, you know, is free, open. And um, I just, you know, kind of post like some videos and, and stuff like that. Um, I have a blog on psychology today called Invisible Bruises. It's the same name as my book. And I talk about ways to heal from family trauma, ways to work through uh, your own trauma and like do your own work, talk about, you know, ways to, you know, recognize boundaries and recognize red flags, also identifying green flags and relationships and stuff too. Wonderful. Yeah. Excellent. So I will be sure to list all of these resources in the show notes, including the link to your website. And you also mentioned to me before, and I'll, I'll bring it up now, that you do a lot of giveaways of your book too. Mm-hmm. So for people who haven't mm-hmm. been able to afford it. Yep. I have a lot of people who reach out to me and say, look, you know, I, I'm a, you know, a single parent. I just, you know, I just moved here. I don't really have a full-time job. I can't afford to buy your book. So I, I have, you know, I lowered the price for the book on, I have a Kindle version for people who can't have a hard copy, you know, for obvious reasons. So I, I, you know, I recommend grabbing the Kindle version, reach, you know, reach out to me. You know, I do a lot of kind of book giveaways and stuff like that for people. If you know anyone who needs it, a lot of people will email me and say, hey, you know, my aunt could really use this book. You know, my brother could really use this book. Can you send it to me and I'll give it to them, that kind of stuff. So please reach out and let me know. Well, thank you again for generously sharing your time with us today and for all of the helpful information that you shared. I really enjoyed talking with you. All right. Thank you so much for having me.
Thank you to Therapy Notes for sponsoring this week's episode. I do love Therapy Notes. It's such an asset to my business and makes my job as a practice owner and a therapist much easier. Try it today with no strings attached and see why everyone is switching to Therapy Notes, now featuring ePrescribe. Use coupon code CHAT or click the link in the show notes to get two free months at therapynotes.com. Thank you for listening to Therapy Chat with your host, Laura Reagan, LCSWC. For more information, please visit therapychatpodcast.com. Try Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today. With live telephone support seven days a week, it's clear why Therapy Notes is rated 4.9 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot and has a 5-star rating on Google. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. And now for all you prescribers out there, Therapy Notes is proudly introducing ePrescribe. Try it today with no strings attached and see why everyone is switching to Therapy Notes, now featuring ePrescribe. You can get two months free by using promo code CHAT at therapynotes.com. Trauma Therapist Network is a website to learn about trauma and how it shows up in our lives and to find a trauma therapist. Go to traumatherapistnetwork.com to find a trauma therapist near you today. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. 